So we're going to jump right into the book of Romans. Uh, we, we're picking up where we left off last week. We're in the seventh chapter, verses 13 through 25. This is a uh, tricky little section. Uh, it is a hotbed of opinion. And so what we're going to do today is, is take a look at it and do our very best to, to come down on what I would, what I would say is, uh, is, is the best of all of those opinions and the one that I think is most, most faithful to the text. Um, let's, how about we read this? I want us to have our minds oriented around this really well before we start diving into the details of it. So I'm, I'm going to ask you to look there. I have the passage up at the top. Of course, if you have your copy of the scriptures, you're welcome to look at Look at it from there as well. So Romans chapter 7, verses 13 through 25. Hear the word of the Lord. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want. But I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to, the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and infallible word. May his church say amen. So uh, our objectives for this lesson as we look at this passage, number one is to examine Paul's claim and to trace his line of argumentation. It's a little bit of a winding road, but we will trace it as best as we can. And, and by doing that, I hope to substantiate that Paul is addressing regenerate Christians who still struggle with remaining sin. There are other opposing views. There, for example, there's one view that would say that Paul is not addressing regenerate Christians. He's actually addressing unregenerate people who have not yet come to the knowledge of Christ and the gospel. And there is yet even another pretty popular uh, understanding of this scripture is that Paul is dealing with, uh, with 
more of an intertestamental period sort of people who uh, they, they had faith in the law, they had faith in God, but they had not yet fully known Christ. And so they're in that intermediate period. Think of like, for example, the prophets uh, who knew God, loved God, knew the law, loved the law, and yet at the same time did not know the fullness of the work of Christ yet. So that's a, that's a view. Uh, but we're going to take the view this morning that Paul is addressing those who are like us this morning, regenerate Christians who are still struggling with remaining sin. And by doing that, number three, I hope that we can gain instruction from Paul's example. And that in that instruction, we can properly understand our own struggle with sin. And then fourthly, as we gain instruction, we would also gain encouragement. Okay? So that we will, uh, we will be encouraged by Paul's example as we properly understand our hope for freedom one day from all remaining sin. So let's, let's dive into that. We're going to look at this verse by verse for the most part. Romans chapter 7 verse 13 says, Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. I was, it was sin producing death in me through what is good. In order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. This is really Paul uh, kind of wrapping up, in some sense, the conversation he was having in the first half of the book that Mr. Rob uh, discussed last week. If you have your Bibles open, you can look at verse number 10 of chapter 7, and it says, The very commandment that promised life produced death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, it deceived me, and through it, that is, through the law, it killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. So what is Paul what is Paul getting at here? He is saying that the law is good. The law does not bring death. The law is holy. So what's the problem? The problem is sin. Sin is the enemy here, okay? Not the law. Paul is going through great pains to demonstrate this. He says that sin being as wicked and, and as vile as it is, it maliciously, it took the law and it used the law to incite more sin inside of me. Okay, the, the law and, the, and sin are like baking soda and vinegar, right? You, you, you mix those two together and it, it, it's, it's just stirring up more and more sin. And he is saying that God has allowed this. Why? Why would God introduce the law to sinful creatures if he knew that's, that the law was just going to stir or was going to stir up more of our sin? He did this for the purpose of revealing how utterly evil sin is. That the law shows us ourselves, it shows us our sin, and it shows us just how wicked and vile our sin is. So the more law, the more sin, the more sin, the more vile, the more we are awakened to our need for Christ. And of course, he's then going to transition here from talking about those who are under the law, who have not yet come to a knowledge of Christ. He's now going to transition to what about those of us who are in Christ? Are we still struggling with this concept of sin stirring up sin in us? 
And so Paul is going to demonstrate how this is actually, yes, a continued reality to some degree or another in the life of a believer. Look at verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. Two adjectives there. The law is spiritual. I am of the flesh, right? I am fleshly. What's he getting at here? First of all, I want you to notice, and I, I put this down as the first point there. The whole first half of, the, of, the, uh, of this chapter, verses 1 through 12, Paul is writing in the Greek uh, aorist passive tense. Okay, and, and for those of you who haven't studied Greek, some of you have, uh, the aorist passive tense is past completed action. Past completed action. He transitions in 13 to the present tense. Well, what is that? The present tense is present un incomplete action, action that has not yet been completed, and it's in the present time. So in other words, Paul is going from talking about what has happened in the past to what is happening right now. Okay? And what is happening right now? He says that this, the law is spiritual. Well, what does that mean? It means it has divine origin and divine quality to it. That the, that the law comes from God. And, and it, is, it is other. It is different. It is otherworldly. It is spiritual. But what about us? He says, I am, another translation would be carnal or fleshly, sold under sin. And what he means by that, I would argue, is that he's saying that he is fleshly and worldly when unaided by divine grace. Paul is talking about apart from the grace of God, apart from the work of the Holy Spirit in him or in us, we are fleshly. We are carnal, sold under sin. We are helpless and hopeless without the Holy Spirit working in our lives. But now I want you to look at that, okay? Let's just, let's just be honest. Here's our first discussion question. Whenever you read that, and you see that Paul says, the law is spiritual, but I'm of the flesh, sold under sin, what does it sound like? Who does it sound like he's talking about? Does it sound like he's talking about believers or non-believers? Explain. Good, yes, yeah, sanctification is not complete, correct? I 100% agree with you. I think that's what we're going to see as we kind of keep, continue to dig through this. But I, I hope that you can understand why some people hear that language sold under sin. And, for example, they'll compare it to Romans chapter 6, verse 2. You can flip over there and look at it, where uh, whenever you hear the uh, concept of being sold under sin, it's, it sounds almost like he's still talking about an unbeliever. How are Christians still sold under sin? Right, so, so, you know, this, this leads to a bit of confusion and, and, and various opinions on this passage. I just, I just want you to see uh, where, where others might come from if you read about different opinions on this topic. 
Um, but I think as we continue to go, you'll see that, that, that the context of the whole passage is that Paul is talking about believers. And I summarized that at the bottom. I said sin, remaining sin, is still at work in regenerate believers and is still warring to take God's holy law and use it as a tool against God's people. And Paul will demonstrate through his own personal struggle. So let's look at Paul's personal struggle here. Let's go to verse 15. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, isn't that interesting? There's a conflict here between what Paul wants and what Paul actually does. He wants to do right, but he does evil. He wants to flee from evil, and yet he finds himself often ensnared by the thing that he doesn't want to do. And so he says that this, this conflict in him, he says, I do not understand my own actions. What does he mean by that? I, there are a couple of different options here. Let, let's look at option number one is that Paul is saying, whenever he says, I don't understand my own actions, is he saying that he can't wrap his head around the reasons for doing what he does? Okay. What about option two? Paul does not approve or condone of his sinful behavior. So a possible re, uh, uh, in interpretation, or I should say translation of that, of that word gnosko there, uh, it's translated no in the, or understand in the ESV. It could also be translated, I don't approve my own actions. Is Paul saying, I, I don't approve of this. I, I do it, I know I do it, but I don't approve of it. It's, it's not what I'm stamping my approval upon. Or option three, Paul is trying to continue the metaphor of slavery. He just said, I'm, a, I'm, I'm, I'm like a slave sold under sin. Is he continuing that and saying that he does what he's told to do and does not know the reason for his actions, which I think is really closely related to option number one. So it's an interesting, it's an interesting dynamic there. Maybe Paul means all of that. Maybe there's a, a, an element of truth to all of that. He doesn't condone his actions. He doesn't fully understand why he's making these choices. He doesn't, he doesn't fully understand how it is that his mind is warring against his flesh. And there, there's a lot of confusion still inside of him and in, still inside of all of us. I mean, think in your mind, if you've done something this week and you sit down in your uh, easy chair or couch at night and you scratch your head and you're like, why did I do that? <sighs> I know better than that. Why did I? Mm. I think Paul's dealing with that. Look at, look at what Augustine said in his confessions. The punishment of every disordered mind is its own disorder. Now, Paul, Augustine is not giving a commentary on Romans 7 here necessarily. This is just something he said in his confessions. But I, I think it's interesting what he's trying to say that 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 part of the curse of sin is our own disorder and that that disorder is punishment in and of itself now of course we have been renewed in our minds by the power of the holy spirit but as tim said earlier that 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 process is still incomplete right paul says and later on in romans 12 2 he says do not be conformed to the image of this world but be ye transformed by the renewal of your mind implying that that transformation is still ongoing it's a, it's it's not completed and so there is still disorder in us. There's still a war against the flesh. 
and the regenerated mind that has been given us in Christ. Anybody confused yet? It's very. It's an interesting passage. I have uh, been a bit apprehensive to go through it today. So, uh, those of you who have studied this this week as well, and you would like to comment, please feel free to do so. Yes. Yeah, and I, I would definitely agree. I think he definitely knows it on a theological level, and yet there's this, still this struggle. Like, if I know so much, why am I still doing what I don't want to do? Your hand? Yeah, oh yeah, go ahead, Trav. Yes. So I think it just fits perfectly if you just think logically if you're having a conversation with someone about sin, hey, you're free to sin. I mean, they say, why do I sin? Well, you know what it is. It's like, oh, that's depressing. Well, here's one thing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he's definitely going to come back and, and, and redeem us from deep depression, okay? So let's get there before we all end up on uh, uh, in despair, okay? Um, so let's look at 16 and 17, uh, try to get through this uh, quickly. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So the very fact that Paul does not want to sin is because he trusts in the goodness of the law that condemns his sin and uh, binds his conscience. So the very fact that he doesn't want to do something is because he agrees with the law that it is good. In other words, he is implicitly agreeing with the law through his desires. So think about that. Paul agrees with the law because he does the law. And even whenever he doesn't do the law, he doesn't do it because he doesn't want to, which testifies still that he agrees with the law. Okay? What is the most likely reason why Paul is in agreement with God's law? He's maturing. Good. He's a believer. You read Romans, the first three chapters of Romans, and you get the very clear idea that those who do not believe, those who are not made new in Christ, have zero desire for God. Genuine desire. 
for God. Genuine love for the law. Genuine agreement with the law. Even the Pharisees who said that they agreed with the law did their best to water it down so that they could live thereby and check off the boxes. Right? Which is, goes back to what we said in our catechism question, right? That, that Jesus had to explain, no, this is the fullness of what you shall not commit adultery means. You're trying to water it down to this very uh, simple understanding of you are to not commit the physical act of adultery. Jesus says, no, 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 no. It goes much, much deeper than that. So a genuine love for the law and a genuine love for God, like Paul is describing here, I don't see how it could possibly be applied to unbelievers. Which helps us to answer the question we asked a few minutes ago about who is Paul talking about. The next discussion question there, when Paul says, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me, is Paul saying he's not responsible for his sin? What's the proper meaning here? It's no longer I who do it, it's sin that dwells within me. Is that what he's saying? By no means. Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Yeah. 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 Taken in context of the whole thing, like if you were to cherry pick that verse, somebody might could take that and run with it. But taken in the context, Paul's not saying it. And 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 also in verse twenty four, he's going to he's going to completely own it. I sin, me, Paul. Ding 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 ding. He's going to own it in just a few minutes. Yes, John. It's very good. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Good. Excellent. Uh, you'll, you'll see there, I have a quote, that first point. Um, Paul says, he's using a participle here. He's saying, it's the dwelling in me sin that does this. There's another way that you could translate that. Leon Moore states it this way. Sin is pictured as having taken up residence in Paul. Sin is not the honored guest, nor the paying tenant, but the squatter. Not legitimately there, but very difficult to eject. Sin is in some sense a separate entity, even though it is within him. Uh, so, yeah, I hope not quench the spirit for some of you, but Tim Keller makes the, uh, the point in his book on preaching. He's, you know, he's talking about how uh, sin once reigned. It was the king of us. It was our Lord and our master, but sin has been dethroned. It's no longer sitting on the throne with the crown and rule over the province, but yet sin is still in the kingdom and tries to attack us in various areas of our life like guerrilla warfare. So you'll notice like you, I'm struggling in this area of my life and that area of my life and and, and it's because it's sin that still dwells within us, popping up like guerrilla warfare, trying to take back control. It wants control. Of course, it will never get it by the mercy and grace of God. Martin Luther uses the illustration of a rider on horseback, that second point there. He says, quote, it's as, it's as with a rider when his horse does not trot exactly as he wishes. It is he and yet not he that causes it to trot as it does. For the horse is not without him, nor is he without the horse. Interesting analogy. Again, that warring of flesh 
and the renewed mind. Romans 7 and 18, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Paul emphasizes that nothing good dwells where? In his flesh. And this seems to harken back to 714, referring to the person who lives uh, without the aid of divine grace. So Paul's flesh, without the aid of the Holy Spirit, does not have the ability to carry out the law of God. You and I who are living by the law of God today, whatever percentage of you is doing that, that percentage is wrought by the Holy Spirit, ultimately. In other words, Paul is nothing in and of himself, but needs the power of God to refrain from sin. Um, Romans 19 through 21, I'm not going to read that again, but uh, I, because I think it, it's, uh, it's a re-emphasis of what Paul has already said, except now he's stating it in the positive. Not only does he do evil that he doesn't want, but the very good things he wants to do, he can't do the good. He wants to do uh, right, but evil, every time he tries to do right, evil lies close at hand. And it's, a, it's an irritating struggle, isn't it? I deal with that in my own parenting. My wife will tell you. I, 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 I wake up every morning and try to remind myself these are tiny baby children. They do not have fully developed brains. Frontal lobes are still mushy. And uh, you are a full-grown man, Jonathan, and you need to be patient and understanding of your children and love them and be gracious to them. And as the day goes by and my patience grows thinner and thinner and thinner, I end up, you know, sometimes doing things that I told myself that morning I was not going to do. Right? Because evil always lies close at hand. That flesh is still there. Still struggling. I'm sure you deal with that to some degree in your own life, whether it's in your parenting or a boss or a coworker or whatever the case may be for you. You, you. you know how to do right and you try, and yet so often you fall short. Going on to the next page. Sin is the enemy in this chapter. That's the key here. Sin is the enemy. Sin exacerbates us against the law of God. And it, even within the regenerate person who strives to do the will of God, sin lies close at hand to frustrate us. 22 through 23, Paul says, For I, for I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. So again, here's, here's you got two fighters in the ring here. Maybe three, I'm going to say two. Contestant number one is the inner being, the law of my mind. Contestant number two, another law in my members, and those two are in the ring. And the contest, the result the law of my mind versus the law of my members. The law in his members sometimes wins and makes him captive to the law of sin that dwells in his members. Again, he's just going at pains to say the same sort of thing, and he's saying it in a lot of different ways, trying to drive this into the mind and the heart of his readers. Interesting, though, notice that Paul does not say that the body is inherently evil. I want us to make sure we're clear on that. We're not Gnostics, okay? 
The body is not inherently evil. The law of sin dwells in his members. The law of sin is not his members. The law of sin dwells in his members. Or uh, David Dockery said it this way, Sin is not external, but it is internal because it is in my flesh. Flesh, therefore, should not be understood as external, but peripheral. All right, so sin dwells in us. It's taking us captive. And again, that's why, and Paul's going to say this, as we get further in Romans, he's going to say it, you know, that, that, that creation groans for renewal, right? And part of creation is our own bodies. We groan for a renewed body. We, we are longing for glory where sin is completely removed from our members and we can enjoy the peace of God both in mind and in body in perfect harmony like God intended it to be all along before the fall. That's what we're longing for. So the discussion question there, is Paul making an accurate description of the Christian life? Do you, do you agree or disagree with what we've said so far? How do we understand this verse in, in light of Romans 6? We don't have to answer that. I think we already have, but maybe the first one there. Is this an accurate description of the Christian life? Heard somebody say, it's mine. Yeah, <laughs> Me too. Yeah. Uh, on the back page, if you would just go ahead and turn to the next page, just I want to skip just a smidge. The Westminster Confession, verse 13, three, or chapter 13, section 3, um, is alluding to this very same thing. In which war, although remaining corruption for a time may prevail, yet through the continual supply of strength from the sanctifying Spirit of Christ, the regenerate part doth overcome. And so the saints grow in grace, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. So even the, even the Westminster divines recognize that there is a war going on. And that at times... We're, we're, we don't feel like we're winning that war, but the regenerate part doth overcome, and it will ultimately overcome in the end, and we will be perfected in holiness. We're longing for that day. Look at 14.4. True believers, look at that, true believers, okay, not pseudo-Christians. I'm talking about true believers may have the assurance of their salvation. Uh, I'm sorry. True believers may have the assurance of their salvation diverse ways shaken, diminished, and intermitted. Why? As by negligence and preserving of it, by falling into some special sin which woundeth the conscience and grieveth the spirit, by some sudden or vehement temptation, or even by God's withdrawal of the light of his countenance, and suffering even such as fear him to walk in darkness and to have no light, yet, yet, they are not utterly destitute of the seed of God and the life of faith. That love of Christ and the brethren, that sincerity of heart and the conscience of duty, out of which, by the operation of the Spirit, this assurance may in due time be revived. And by the which, in the meantime, they are supported from utter despair. A recognition, right, that, that this is a struggle, and yet God is going to persevere us to the end. He is not going to leave us utterly destitute. And Paul's going to get there right here 
After laboring to describe his dilemma, Paul finally erupts with a question that encapsulates his hopes in light of his plight. He says, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And then he says in 725, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Who's going to deliver me from this body of death? Christ. Who is currently, progressively, delivering me from this body of death? Christ is. Who's going to finish the work? Christ is. It's, it's a guarantee. And then he summarizes his argument. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Look at the New English Bible's translation of that. Really good, a really good uh, a dynamic translation, but a translation nonetheless. It says, in a word then, I myself, subject to God's law as a rational being, am yet in my sinful nature a slave to the law of sin. So, answer this question in your mind. Do you find this summary that Paul has given us discouraging or encouraging? Both. We're both. It's encouraging to know we're not alone, right? Even the Apostle Paul was going through this. And yet it's discouraging to know that we're still, we're still not there. We're still, we're still yearning for the completion of our salvation. That's a painful reality to live in. It may be a painful reality tomorrow when we do the very thing Paul's talking about. We're having to sit in our own stew. We rest in the final work of Christ, not in our final work. Because uh, we get an F on our report card, don't we? You know? We don't even, we don't even listen to the right. Yeah, that's exactly right. We're in the wrong schoolhouse, y'all. John? And better. Yeah. 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 Christ gave that commandment to Peter. You know, Lord shall I forgive seven times, seven times, right? Perfect number. That's a good one. No. 70 times seven, right? In other words, don't, you don't quit forgiving someone. You don't, you never, never do you have a right to harbor hatred, bitterness towards another person. How, if, if Christ has given us that commandment, he's given us that commandment because he fulfills it himself towards us. That's an encouragement. Uh, go, to the, uh, go to the next page. I want us to look at a case study here for the last uh, six minutes or so. Um, how was, this is very culturally relevant because our culture is responding to their sin too. How are they doing it? 
we could have a conversation about this for the next hour. Let's try to do it in six minutes, okay? Uh, Taylor Swift has just released this really popular song called Antihero. Anybody heard it yet? Antihero? Well, I've given you the, 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 the blessing of being able to read the first little bit of it. Let's look at it. She says, I have this thing where I get older but just never wiser. Midnights become my afternoons. When my depression works the graveyard shift, all the people I've ghosted stand there in the room. I should not be left to my own devices. They come with prices and vices. I end up in crisis, tale as old as time. I wake up screaming from dreaming. One day I'll watch as you're leaving because you got tired of my scheming for the last time. Chorus, it's me. Hi, I'm the problem. It's me. See, some of you got it. At tea, time, everybody agrees. I'm flat, but um, I'll stare directly at the sun, but never in the mirror. I, it must be exhausted, always rooting for the anti-hero. That's the first part of it. Look at what she said. I looked up, I want to know, like, how does she interpret this song? Look how Taylor Swift interprets this song. She says, this song is a real guided tour throughout all the things I tend to hate about myself. Okay? We all hate things about ourselves. True. Look at this. And it's all of those aspects of the things we dislike and like about ourselves that we have to come to terms with if we're going to be this person. Chew on that for a second. How would you compare Taylor Swift's response to her sin to Paul's response for his? Mm. I don't like them. I don't like any of these things about myself, and I know you don't either, but it's me. Hi, I'm the problem. Yeah. She has no hope No. She just is who she is and she has to make the best of it, right? You know, when life hands you lemons, make lemonade, you know, so add as much sugar to the lemons as you can to make it tolerable to drink. It's interesting that the song is called an anti-hero. An anti-hero is a hero that just has qualities you wouldn't typically associate with a hero, right? Uh, Punisher, those of you who are Marvel comic fans, Punisher just a man who is uh, bent on vengeance, bloodthirsty vengeance. He only kills the bad guys, though. Uh, James Spader's uh, Raymond Reddington in The Blacklist, for those of you who have seen that on NBC, anti-hero. Batman, Han Solo, right? Some of these famous anti-heroes from television and movies, and I'm sure you could think of some for uh, in literature as well but right these are these are people who even though they have some qualities about them that you just are like mm, does not set well at the same time you find yourself rooting for them samson anti-hero Ex- beautiful thank you yeah i mean samson was vile it's just and yet he's the hero in some sense or another so she's saying you know i'm a hero I just have things about me I don't like. I know you don't like, but you're still rooting for me. 
And that's the way our culture is dealing with sin, isn't it, right? Where, where like somebody said, you have, to, you have to accept who you are and do the best you can with it because when you don't have hope in Christ, what hope do you have? I'm sure that you can see how even some of this is infiltrating the church right now. With some of the worldviews that um, would deny or some of the biblical views that so-called biblical views that would deny sanctification, deny the work of Christ in us. So we have to be careful of that. God is, he is renewing us and he is going to complete that work and sin is something to be grieved and it is something to be flung upon the finished work of Christ. We're out of time. Let's uh, close with prayer. Please join me. Lord, we, we end today this lesson from the book of Romans in some ways in grief and yet, Lord, in, in, in more ways in hope. And even as we look at the next chapter of Romans next week, I pray you would fill our hearts with hope. Lord, that we are free in Christ, that we have been made new. Lord, that you are bringing our salvation to completion, to fulfilled glory. But Lord, even as we wrestle with, with this this week and as we consider our own sin, Lord, that we would take it oh so seriously. Lord, that we would cast ourselves upon you and upon your grace and upon the power of the Holy Spirit to live the life you've called us to live. Empower us for that this week. Lord, sanctify us all the more this week that we would daily conform to the image of our Lord and our Savior, your Son, Jesus Christ. Bless us as we go into the worship service. I pray that you would bless all that is done, the preaching, the singing, the reading of your word, and may its truths be stamped upon our hearts. We ask this in the name of Jesus, our Lord and our Savior. Amen.